This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Salutations. What are we talking about this evening, Puka? This evening, we are starting the first in our trilogy of episodes about that densely packed kerfluffle book that is Dreams and Nightmares. But we have a special guest to help us get through it today, which is Mage the Podcast host, Terry Robinson. Greetings, Terry. Hi, Mage fans. Hi. I just want to say that this book was a hoot to go through just because there's a lot of books that talk about what other game lines think about your game's thing. And most of them are like slightly twisted or kind of off, but this one was just flat out FU mages. And I appreciated the chrome plated cojones it brought to this. I mean, it was also FU Wraiths and FU Werewolves, to be fair, but... Yeah, uh, uh, Mages, though, the Mage FU was Primus Inter Partes, though. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, Dreams and Nightmares. This was written by uh, R.S. Martin, Neil Mick, and Jim Moore. On the authors, because I didn't recognize any of them either, so I looked them up. I don't think any of them did anything else for Changeling. Robert Martin seems to have done quite a bit in the original Trinity universe. And then James A. Moore did some stuff on like Wraith the Oblivion. Couldn't find anything about Neil Mick. So as far as I'm concerned, they are three Chimera who stepped forward from the Dreaming, wrote this book, and then promptly disappeared into the annals of 90s White Wolf. Yeah, I I think they did a good job too. (laughs) They certainly did a thorough job. Yes. So yeah, Dreams and Nightmares. We'll be breaking this up into three episodes. So we're here with Terry talking about the near dreaming and introduction and whatnot, as well as implications in mage cosmology crossover. What's their other? Cosmological connections. Cosmological connections. There we go. So yeah, this book starts off, it has like a running narrative going through it, starting with the introduction, a guide to the dreaming. And some artwork before that with somebody's shoulders that I'm very confused by. It is the relationship between the head, the shoulder, and the hand. It's kind of like a Penrose triangle. Two of them can be right, but not all three at Mm -hmm. once. Maybe it's supposed to represent the non-Euclidean nature of the dream. Non-Euclidean anatomy. (laughs) Yep. When we were looking at the um, Book of Lost Dreams, and I commented on this, this is Paul Phillips' art again, and his curiously boxy humanoids that he likes to draw. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. He does boxy, muscular humanoids and then kind of woodcut backgrounds, which I like. Like, you can kind of tell it was done on Bristol board with like the appropriate amount of shading to it. I kind of like that style. He did a uh, Celestial Chorus, is kind of the big one that comes to mind where uh, where he did it. I think he and Vincent Locke have really a, an interesting and complimentary style. So, I was pleased to see Philip's artistry here. I'll accept it. <laughs> yeah. This is also uh, in the black and white. Now, unfortunately, the, most of the supplements black and white era of, of Changeling the Dreaming. Yeah. So how about this introductory fiction? It seemed like a good reason to go in the Dreaming. Hooray. So yeah, the character of Mug the Sealy Redcap from the first edition Player's Guide apparently has disappeared somewhere in the Dreaming on some kind of quest. 
and all of his friends get together in some, I guess, an airship and head out into the Dreaming to try and find him before Bloody Nick, the evil Redcap, and his merry band find their friend. Yeah, I think think it served its purpose. Yeah, and it's kind of a nice... I mean, I know introductory fiction, like at the start of each chapter in White Wolf books, can sometimes go in directions that aren't entirely helpful. But in terms of setting the tone of running a Dreaming game, having this kind of narrative through line chapter by chapter... I suppose can be helpful. And it sort of reinforced that we didn't really get a lot of dreaming narrative in first edition. Like the fact that it took them until second edition to put out a book about the dreaming is kind of telling. So the first edition stories Mm -hmm. and books seem much more grounded in being changelings in the autumn world. And now entering fully the dreaming gets its own sort of take. Having a story helps kind of reinforce the geography and the mechanics and everything that they're introducing alongside it. Yeah, T- to be fair, I mean, Mage still hasn't gotten its supplement on Ascension, so. <laughs> Nor should it. Yeah, we haven't gotten a supplement on Ascension. We haven't gotten a supplement on uh, India. We haven't gotten an M20 yeah. book of madness. It's like changing the dreaming got, you know, a book on the dreaming is what we're saying. When, where's Mage the Ascension's book on Ascension? I mean, we literally have the book Ascension. That's true. But <laughs> it really depends. It really depends on to what degree Ascension is the the real Ascension or the friends we made along the way. Mm-hmm. So I guess, how does that apply to the other lines? Did Hunter the Reckoning get a book on the Reckoning? I guess it is in the milieu of it. Mm-hmm. Mommy the Resurrection is all about resurrection. So like, mm-hmm. yeah. done. I mean, Vampire the Masquerade, that got it right from square, from the beginning. Yeah. yeah, good point. It took Maids the longest to get our book about the thing in the name. Okay. So the stories, and then we have an introduction to the dreaming, which talks about what the dreaming is, which here it's very clearly saying the dreaming is created by humanity and basically the unconsciousness of humanity. It's created by the minds of people everywhere. And it talks about the sundering being when people started being like rational or conscious, maybe. Can I just say, I really love that descriptive paragraph on page seven, the what is the dreaming paragraph. I think that just sums up everything I want in talking about the dreaming. Mm-hmm. The dreaming is a realm where every wish is a reality and every fear is a certainty. The chaotic landscape of the collective unconscious, haunted by wishes for pleasure and vengeance, peopled by the stuff of myth and outlawed by the beliefs of the masses. It's just, you know, it's cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And it talks a lot about how it's connected to dreams, but not just sleeping people, but that's a big connection. Gets more details into chimerical reality. Well, I don't know what details. Words. Yeah, lots of capitalized words. <laughs> the yep. whole realms of flesh and myth thing and the spawning fields. I was like, was I supposed to know what these are already? Yeah, I think it was introduced here, the spawning fields. Yeah, it talks about the role of dreamers, children, things like that. Really, there's a lot of important notes here. And it's unclear to me how many of these were meant to be like part of the dreaming from the start of the game and they're kind of distilling and clarifying it here and how much of it is mm-hmm. we're going to just make this up and say it because guess what we're the authors and there's a lot like a lot <laughs> so. i feel like there's a fair bit of that because you have the footnote in the appendix where it's like so dreamcraft duh <laughs> yeah. like, we just gave you a whole book on it so we need to update those powers so that suggests to me that it's kind of a new thing and I, that that regularly happens in a game where you're like oh this this thing is now a world unto itself yeah and and i am perfectly fine with that like whenever we get these 
authors who have never done anything else, I kind of want to refer to them as like outsider art. Hmm. And hmm. I'm perfectly fine when they kind of break ranks. Like Order of Reason for Mage Sorcerer Crusade is functionally Brian Campbell, the author, going, F you, I invented this technocracy. I get to make them do whatever I want because it like does not agree with the rest of Sorcerer's Crusade in some basic ways. <laughs> and there's like a little note in the intro that's like, yeah, what you gonna do? <laughs> yeah. So at least yeah. it's lampshaded. I, I do like the bit, I don't know if this probably did not exist before, but like what happened when somebody brought cold iron into the dream? Oh room? yeah, the crow. That was pretty B.A. Yeah, B.A.? Bachelor of Arts? Badass. Oh. So yeah, we get notes about like, I pulled out a bunch of ones that I, I thought were important to kind of bear in mind. So there's a note that almost nobody who leaves a trod ever comes back in the opening fiction. And I'm thinking... Well, that would probably be important for players to know because in games where I've played and there's been a dreaming jaunt, people are like, all right, we've got to go off trod. That maybe is a little bit more significant than you realize. There's notes about how the dreaming is alive but not sentient, how it shifts on the basis of time, how children and the insane have an outsized impact on its form. I did particularly like, though, the note about changelings passing through mortal dreams while traveling along and, like, grabbing items along the way. So, like, you can grab a hat from someone's dream, grab a sword from somebody else's. I don't... That's one bit with the mortal dreams part in this book. I'm confused as to where those are, like, geographically. Is that, like, a thing you'd come up... Like, if there's a sleeping person in your dream and you walk by them, are you walking in their dream? Or is that something else happening? I would visualize it and probably storytell it as like, you know, the Motley is walking along and suddenly you go around a corner on the trod or whatever and the landscape entirely changes and it's clear you're in this different, small, but self-contained space, like going into the holodeck, you know, and mm-hmm. that's the mortal dream, like a little a little fragment yeah. that has floated up. Yeah. But yeah. That's just, it just didn't, it didn't seem explicit for them. Yeah. No. Um, so we get more on the mists. That was pretty interesting to me about the mists, where it says that the mists were created by the dreaming as a buffer, whereas the mists previously from conversations I had heard from changeling folk was that it was kind of an embodiment more of myth. So here it's mm. kind of presented as an immune system versus kind of the enforcing agent for the, the dreaming. I don't know. This is said as the mage guy, not the yeah. changeling guy, but I don't know if that differs or if that's just another aspect. Also, while we're talking about these interesting parts, I do like that it says that banality is responded to in the dreaming like a cancer, which mm. means I guess it's fed by the dreaming and it grows larger. <laughs> 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 that's like the diagnostic thing about cancer. If your yeah, body's immune system worked against it, it would be much less of a problem. It should have said infection, I think, yeah. was more what they were getting yeah. <laughs> but a parasite or something. But to your point, Terry, I mean, I that's interesting that you've had that impression from other Changeling fans, because I've always thought of it as like an immune system or... Okay. I, I've actually never heard that other version you're talking about, so... Got it. <laughs> I'm going to go back to my mage corner now. <laughs> no, no, I'm not I mean, saying, I'm, I'm just curious what that's based on. Like it's Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably oh, the idea the idea that the the mists are the enforcing agent of the dreaming as pertains to No, things. the other the first part I I never heard before. Here that it was kind of the enforcement arm of the dreaming that like when you break an oath it's the mists that come for you. I guess that's kind of similar to how it's described here. I don't think it's the mists that come for you though when you break an oath. It's no. the dreaming that comes for you. No. <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah. The mists are a forgetting thing. It's, yeah. it's like, strictly. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like arcane in terms of it's not just necessarily your memories. It might be objects sometimes, but at least described that way. But it's very much a memory. The Gobirium and Werewolf, right? Uh, yeah. Or the fog. But I was just thinking how arcane also can cover up records and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. And then we get into an interesting cosmological question on otherware or cosmological description. Otherware sounds like a term that you have underwear, outerwear, and then you have otherware. So we have this notion. I do kind of like the, because they try to do this pan world of darkness kind of, well, leaving out the vampires, where they say the shattering broke the mythic into countless pieces. And the implication is that their mages, wraiths, garu, and changelings are all kind of caught up in that, you know, event. So while I'm okay with that, they then try to create this thing called the otherware as, I guess, this unified space into which each of the other worlds of each of those splats can be related to. And I'm just, I'm not quite sure what they're selling, so I'm not quite sure if I'm buying it. Well, the first thing in the paragraph, it explicitly says, it's explicitly saying this chapter, this section is unreliable narrator. It's the changeling perspective on it. At least I think that's how I read it. In truth, all the supernaturals are partially right, and they're all partially ignorant of the greater truths and mysteries of the universe. It says, yeah, the description below reflects what the Cathane believe is the truth. This I suppose, is like yeah. Knowledgeable that's... changeling. You got you got Greymare 5. This is what you think, kind of. Even then, though, it's still kind of... I think because it read like they were trying to describe it in a way that you could draw a map, but it was kind of internally self-contradictory, and I couldn't fully get my head around what they were trying to say. I think as long as you don't restrict yourself to three dimension, three spatial dimensions, it makes some sense, maybe. But To me, the question of where is a weird one. It is always a question of like, okay, so what are the connections? This is not something like we were playing Planescape where it's like, oh, the, the elemental plane of uh, fire and the positive material plane overlap and create steam or something like that. Here they talk about the umbrae the high umbra the middle umbra and the low umbra and then the middle umbra is broken down into near far and deep in mage we generally talk about umbra in one of two ways one we refer to the umbra which is everything kind of outside of mundane reality there's some argument on whether or not like space counts because you, you get these contradictory things kind of that like either space is where the umbra and the material world overlap or where the things are are, are utterly distinct. And, and Mage kind of takes the view that you have our reality, you have the reflections of our reality, which are the penumbrae, and then you have the high, middle, and low umbra. The high umbra is the realm of thought, the middle umbra is the, uh, the realm of emotion, and the low umbra is kind of the realm of memory, which frequently gets interpreted as death. In Mage, we then have what are called zones that cut across them, of which the two best known are the digital web, which is also listed as being coterminous with the gauntlet. <sighs> sure. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. That was invented, I think, and revised as a way to let people go to the digital web without incurring uh, Avatar Storm damage, but that's neither here nor there. And the other one being the Maya, which is the mage term for the dream realm, which may or may not include the dreaming. I think all of these spaces are infinite. So to say that the one contains another is functionally a question of classification. Whereas in Changeling, it seemingly rotates that 90 degrees and says, this is the dreaming. And that spawns off into other places. 
Yeah. yeah. So what they're saying here is there's an other otherware, which contains all the mythic, which is just like stuff that's not physical Earth, I guess, into countless pieces. And then there's the dreaming is actually, you could think of it as a bunch of almost disconnected pieces with trods linking them that you can sort of go between. And it talks about like, if you're going in between like sort of bubbles of reality of the dreaming, you might be going through like, it sounds like there's like places where it's like a little bit dreaming, but also maybe a little bit middle umbra or a little bit high umbra. As you're going through it, that that's how I was sort of seeing it, or maybe something else that's not the Umbra at all, not, not nothing Umbra described, like some void space too. There could be. It could also be the fact that it is the trod that passes through somewhere else to get to another part within yeah. the dreaming, and there is no reasonable way to me to differentiate between the two. Saying mm-hmm. that it is like islands or it is a side effect of trods, we would need a lot more yep. information on like what, for lack of a better term, overland transit <laughs> in yep. the dreaming would look like. So to me, all of them, all of them play together. Like I don't find anything that is really contradictory. Like the only thing reading here that is hugely contradictory with Mage is Mage proposes the etheric sea where the dream bubbles are floating. And that's kind of different, but you could also say mages are more comfortable going through the interstitial space as it were, where changelings Mm -hmm. tend to stick with trods and mages don't understand trods. So they don't get to use that as a mechanism. I think you could also say like mage is mostly talking about the places where the dreaming in the high umbra interface, and they just don't know about the other parts of the dreaming. Mm, Yep. I have a hard part with the with that interfacing thing. In Mage Revised, there are mentions of their areas where like Umbre overlap with one another. Um, that's also kind of suggested in some of the revised werewolf ones, but it's one of those things that's only mentioned in like one or two places. So yeah. I tend to prefer to interpret that as there are portals between these things. The one-way paths of Balor are discussed in here. And kind of just some of the energy seeps through than rather referring to the planes overlapping because that, that to me does get kind of geographically messy, but that's just mm-hmm. me. But yeah. So anyway, this is what they're presenting as these interstitial places. There's overlap. Potentially there's even places where there's no place. Like there's, there's no, it's not the, um, any Umbra. It's not the dreaming at all. Don't go there. It's not going to be healthy for you. Mm-hmm. They, they talk about the middle Umbra, the high Umbra and the low Umbra. But they're all describing it as near, far, deep. And I know with, with Wraith, at least, they're fitting in the Shadowlands as the near, the Tempest as the far, and the Four Shows as the deep is a thing that both would make sense to me as a changeling listening, who knows a lot about Wraiths talking to them and not fitting Wraith at all. So I, I sort of feel that way about the other, what it's talking about, the other Umbras too. Yeah, I have a feeling like there are not a lot of changelings who have been to the Maw of Oblivion or the Well of Souls or um, the Labyrinth. Yeah. In fact, it says like none basically in the far shores. Yeah. So probably not a ton in Stygia even. That would be not pleasant for anybody. As a possible connection to Mage, how do you think this might connect to the notion of Vidare, which I think is just an M20 thing, right? The Vidare are, they, they were introduced in Book of Worlds. So that was okay. Mage's first other place book. And the Vidare is essentially the idea that depending on your way of viewing reality, when you step into the penumbra, which is the region of the umbra that is a very closely a direct 
reflection of the mortal world of the of the material world, which is sometimes referred to as the common world, or I generally use the term the mundane world, will change your inflection. That if you're a dour goth, you have the vidare mortuum and that brings about certain cosmological questions that are really hard, in my opinion. So uh, Mage just posits that there's only one penumbra and it's a lens through which you see it. But then you get into weird places where if a mage enters the Vidari Mortuum, which a wraith would recognize as the Shadowlands, and then gets on the Midnight Express, what mm. does their companion see? Do they just see their floating euthanatoy buddy zoom off? <laughs> in the distance <laughs> like is this like wonder yeah. woman's invisible train so at my table i make them three different umbre it is very easy to mm-hmm. move back and forth between them um kind of like in the link to the past where you gain the ability to just kind of switch back and forth between the uh the world of dark and the world of light and everything like geographically kind of maps onto each other mage does not have kind of a consistent way of doing that but then at the same point the question is to what extent do you really need everything to play yeah. well with each other but uh, to answer Puka's question, Vidari is kind of a, a mode of thought or a mental space that mm. changes the aspect of the penumbra that is visible to you. Uh, alternatively, you could say that all three penumbrae sit on top of each other and you only, you kind of attune yourself to one and that they, it is not meaningful to refer to it as different places in the same way that heavy rocks and magnets both exist in the same space, but to the electromagnetic spectrum the rock may functionally be invisible, but in magnetic space, your, your lump of, of lodestone or pyrite or what have you may be magnetically active or something. It's not like they are in like different dimensions. They're just subject to different yeah, forces yeah. as it were. And I fully recognize yeah. that seeing the, the rock would involve interacting with EM because that's how light works, but work with me, people. Magnetic fields as opposed to electromagnetic, but that'll work. And Terry, I want to ask, there's a note in here within the high umbra its near umbra is closest to the world changeling share with mortals. Much like the dreaming, the near umbra reflects the shapes of the flesh realm. Likewise, here mages are freed from the restraints that hold back their powers in the mundane world. Mages often create homes for themselves within the near umbra for easy access to its power and freedom. Does that track with what we know about things like domain and umbral realms that mages create? It doesn't not track, (laughs) I guess would be my way of putting it. Got it. Um, (laughs) So mages tend to create kind of two sets of homes that they have in the mundane world are kind of version of freeholds. We just call chantries and frequently they will have a earthly aspect to them, which is entirely in the mundane world, even to the point that the reality within the chantry will frequently largely mirror the reality outside of it with a few notable exceptions that only at the, like the room level as represented by the sanctum background, does the mage have the ability to really set reality with enough vigor that their magic may be slightly more coincidental to do in their, in their study than in the chantry or the, or the world out loud, uh, outside. Then there are umbral realms. Mage takes a very geocentric view for lack of a better term. And basically you have the earth, you have the penumbra that surround it. You have the near umbra that goes out to pretty well the nearest thing that, that humans have kind of touched. And then you have everything beyond that. So you have a horizon, a near horizon that occurs at about the moon. And then you have a far horizon that occurs at about the asteroid belt. 
in that space in between, depending on the addition, either embedded in that far horizon, in that shell, there are a bunch of little magical realms that are fed by quintessence, which is mage juice, that no one's quite sure how they got there necessarily. Sometimes they can be created if you have like uh, nine dots and being amazing at everything all the time. Or alternatively, they're just kind of floating in that interstitial etheric space. And those are umbral realms, or at least a class of umbral realms. And that tends to be where mages set up their home. So the high, middle, and low umbra in mage is kind of orthogonal to that umbra that is defined as being somehow homologous or or at a one-to-one relationship with what we know to be the actual geography of space. So mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things where mages generally don't make their home in the penumbra. They generally make it kind of further in, as it were, more conceptually distant from Earth. Yeah, so what it's saying here, I just want to get to see how this maps to what mage says, is it's essentially saying you have the penumbra, right, which is like physically like Earth. And then you have on the border between the penumbra and the far umbra is the horizon realms, a long horizon. Is that like- Again, it's so so the thing about it in Mage is as we were talking about earlier, the question is not necessarily geographically where something is, but like can you get there from here? Um mm-hmm. very rarely do mages actually like travel through that uh inter-realm medium to get from place to place. They're generally using a portal that's been established. Mm. Either it is a byproduct of having quintessence, again, mage juice keep the realm up and running, which involves it being connected to earth in some way or some other place. So like almost where it is, is unimportant. There are a few other realms that are floating around out there that you can kind of like beat your way in through the walls, but kind of dealing with those pericarps, uh, those barriers are, are pretty difficult. So again, this is one of those things where it works if you kind of rotate everything 90 degrees and yeah. yeah, this is the perspective of somebody who's it's be like a changeling's walking around without using teleportation magic, and they're going somewhere. I think is what the yeah yeah. But if they were to do that, would I would I call shenanigans on it? No, yeah. that's close enough. Like it, kind of the big thing about realms is they're in kind of a vast space. So as long as you maintain that it is generally mm-hmm. easier to get in and out of them through those portals. But if you really want to, you can go through that um, umbral medium to try and find it. It is just kind of rarely done. And whenever it's kind of done successfully, it's kind of an earth shattering event. Um, and by earth shattering, mm-hmm. I mean realm shattering event. So you have like the attack on horizon, you have uh, the assault of Duizatap and so on. Like those are normally mitigated by portals. One is located on Mars. The other one is just kind of out there. And, and kind of when they are invaded, it is a notable plot event. So it's one of those things mm-hmm. where like, yeah, there might be a disagreement, but to me, it's not important enough to care too much. Does Mage, Umbra, Cosmology, whatever, have pathways? It doesn't have the neat pathways that the other game lines do. Mage recognizes the existence of Niles, Moonbridges, and Trots, which mm-hmm. is to say the kind of the, the Wraith werewolf and and changeling ways of getting around but kind of one of the key ideas to mage is reality doesn't do you any favors like you Mm -hmm. can do your magic what the dink else do you want 
when mages are in other places, they can use correspondence magic, which is one of the arts, as it were, of mage to move around, but they do not have an instinctive understanding of how to use a moon bridge, for instance, or necessarily how to follow a trod. The idea of there being a path and you being off the path doesn't really have an idea in mage. Okay. In one or two places, it is suggested that mages can kind of make their own paths due to intentionality. Like in one or two books, it said, well, if you have a clear idea of where you're going, you will get there faster. But like mage doesn't spend a lot of time on the journey. It is much more interested in getting you to that realm. And then you do the story at the realm. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't narratively generally focus on the pathway to getting there. And like reading through dreams and nightmares, one of the things that kept coming up is why would my characters be here? Like there is nothing yeah. that would bring them here, but the book kind of clearly indicates that the trod may take you through one of these places and you kind of have to deal with it. Like you have to deal with the wastelands or you have to deal with the great forest or something like that. Mage doesn't really have a lot of those analogs except in the high umbra where if you want to get to an epiphany, um, which is spelled epiphany in mage, which I think is just a misspelling that they ran with. And I'm here for it for days. There's kind of a way you have to do it. You have to start, at the Vulgate, you have to make your way up an elemental court, you have to make your way up a spire, and then you have to take this leap of faith, and then you get to your epiphany, and you get your plot or whatever you needed that you needed to get. There isn't really an analog to it. Um, the closest we have are the paths of the wick, which is this idea that certain practitioners have that there are these kind of elemental pathways riddled throughout Earth. But the way they're actually presented in Mage, they are semi-otherworldly, but they are mostly a rapid-fire way of moving around Earth. So it, mm -hmm. it, it is kind of used to explain things like, how did people from walk from Europe to North America? And so on. Or how did people walk to Japan from mainland China? And the answers are the paths of the wick or something like that. So no, we don't really have special pathways. Oh, okay. I'd like to point out that one of the, the most common arguments that I think comes up between Mage and Changeling and the other games to some extent is whether or not the Dreaming is in the Umbra, part of the Umbra. And once again, as has happened repeatedly, it is specified here that the Dreaming is not the Umbra, full stop, but it is connected. And I kind of like what you're saying about everything you're saying makes me think that it would be amusing if nothing else for like a mage to learn everything there is to know about the high umbra and the middle umbra and the low umbra and they like they're really pumped because they they they've mastered all of this and then suddenly like the changeling pokes their head in from a direction that they didn't know existed because it's in an entirely <laughs> different dimension and just says hello so that you yep. know that there's a lot of potential there and it it makes me wonder when you talk about something like the paths of the wick or the maya and all of these spaces that are not on earth but don't fit neatly into the established umbral cosmology we're talking about things like the otherware which this book says is not the dreaming so it seems like they almost like the game lines could be more unified through this undefined space that lies in the cracks between all of their other worlds something like that to me, partially, this is definitional. So it talks about the umbrae, the high, middle, and low umbra. But Mage also uses the term umbra just to mean everything outside of mundane reality. Yeah. So my answer yeah. is the dreaming is part of the umbra. It is in none of the umbrae. Hmm. Yeah. I think it only comes down to calling it the umbra or not calling it the umbra. That only matters if like 
if you say there are rules that always apply in mm -hmm. the Umbra, like discorporation, which is where a mage or a human potentially, I'm not sure who else would be affected, uh, if they stay too long there becomes a spirit. Yep. That does not happen in the Dreaming. Like that's pretty... Yeah. At least not in the time frames given in. So the dreaming kind of answers that in in a couple of different ways. So the phenomenon Josh is talking about, uh, discorporation or disembodiment, is the idea that if you are off of the mundane portion of Earth for more than 84 days, you will start going through this process where you lose your connection to Earth and will slowly turn into a spirit. In second edition, it existed but no one really cared about it because as long as you were in an area seemingly that had a tie to earth, it wouldn't occur. So if you were in one of those realms, one of those little things that's kind of embedded in the horizon, that's getting quintessence from earth, that was considered to be, eh, it's close enough to earth. It's, it's the, the mage equivalent of opening a window to make sure you get a fresh breeze in. And that prevents you from discorporating. In revised, it became much more Procrustean, where it was very hard to circumvent it, where it's one of those things where to avoid discorporation, you would need to hand over a significant portion of your notion of self to a spirit patron, which is to say the totem background. There was a five dot or a four dot magical device that would do it at the cost of levels of health that you couldn't soak or recover until you had been back to earth. Or certain people are just slightly less prone to it. So yeah, okay, it's a merit. Who cares? The Garu, werewolves also under, undergo it, but they undergo it at one-twelfth the rate where they have to make, mm -hmm. when they step back to Earth uh, for each year beyond the first that they had been on the other side, the difficulty of that role would increase by one. So like that was much less punishing. For changelings, there seemed to be two answers. One, the dreaming is ineluctably tied to a fluid notion of time. So it could be the case that no one has ever actually spent 84 actual days in the dreaming or something like that. Or it could just be the fact that changelings having a tie to the dreaming are protected in the same way that werewolves are protected. Yeah. Again, mages aren't special except for the whole avatar thing. So there is no realm that treats them better due to who they are everything kind of a mage does is because of a relationship they've created yeah. some something quirky in the background or magic they've done yeah it does talk about here in a sidebar long-term effects on being in the dreaming and it talks about both the only difference between changelings and mortals which seems to sort of apply to mage but e either way they both mortals and sleepers are obviously pretty much the same people like it talks about like what happens if a mortal's in there for like over five years and like over 10 years for a changeling. If they come back, the banality loss is permanent. If a mortal comes back, it just rushes right back as soon as they're back in the autumn world. It could also be that that is one of the defining features of a zone because I don't know of there being a mention that being in the, yeah. the digital web, which is kind of the other big zone, which is the high tech zone mm -hmm. for mage is also subject to that. So it could also be one of those things where, where, where zones are exceptions to it. I mean, in Mage, yeah. we don't really get a lot of other zones. Uh, the only other ones we really get are Everett volumes, which is to say the mirror zone. And then we get Vistas, which you can't actually enter. So mm -hmm. it's one of those things where it's like, cutting across all of these are zones. Here are two of the infinite number of them. You're like, you really, you could really do me a solid by giving me a couple more. <laughs> I do like the fact that it's 84 days because it sounds like a, a visa-free travel period. It, it is three 28-day <laughs> periods. 
is where that comes from. Each 28 days, your difficulty of returning increases by one until it hits the maximum of plus three. And then anything after that is is real hard. You start making like weekly rolls and you start losing losing your notion of self and and so on. So and there's a very touching scene in Infinite Tapestry about someone finding their mentor who had turned into a, this kind of monstrous spirit. Hmm. There is a parallel yeah. with that in terms of Bedlam and Changeling too, and just the fact that regardless of what happens to your banality and your fleshly form, being in the dreaming for too long will make you go round the bend. Mm-hmm. Or dreamstruck if you bring in Enchanted with this book. Or that. So yeah, next we have in this book, The Paths of Balor. Balor? Balor. Balor. Okay. Despite the hinted connections to things like the Fomorians and whatnot, and they're kind of sinister. These are one-way paths, unlike the two-way paths of the Silver Path. The Silver Path, by the way, I don't think we said that, is the Arcadian Tuathan something. It's the nice path that you want to go on if you're a changeling. Hmm. These other paths go into the Umbra. Like the black paths go to the Shadowlands. The green paths go to the Middle Umbra. Golden paths go to the High Umbra. Apparently the High Umbra is the scariest place out of the three Umbras. In this book, it sort of says, which is interesting it takes a very particular view right because it says like yeah it goes to the high umbra but where the technocrats are and then the green path it goes mm-hmm. to the middle umbra but it's like where the worm lives and it kind of feels there should be other stuff you can get to <laughs> yeah well it says that they're there so it's dangerous it doesn't say it's like only going to take you to the technocrat places but that's what it chooses to focus on yep it, it, there's a lot of focusing on what will kill you and then it gets in more yes. details you're like that wasn't quite as bad as you just said. It's also weird seeing the high umbra being presented as dangerous. Where like yeah. <laughs> in my high umbra, it's one of those things where you're like you enter the cotton candy forest, which is overseen by the the lords of math who take the form of sentient bees that uh, affect the head of dead presidents. <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, that's yep. super banal and will kill you immediately. <laughs> yeah. So then talks about traveling in the dreaming. Walking's pretty common. Lots of horses, but then talks about like knockers like carts and yeah, various kids' preferences on how to. Obviously, the, the best and most effective method is, of course, balloon. Which we later get in, in key places. I like the f- fact that it mentioned that boats were common, but it talked about the sea of the dreaming. So there's a way to read it where it's basically a big ocean. And then you're like, okay, so what are the horses doing? And then there's another way to read it where it's mostly geographically homologous to earth. And you're like, then how do boats get everywhere? And I immediately thought of the Simpsons thing about night boat, the crime solving boat, which is the high tech (laughs) boat with the artificial intelligence that helps Michael fight crime. And don't have to shout at me. Exactly. I'm all around. And Bart and Lisa mentioned that whenever the villain escapes onto land, there's always an inlet canal or fjord for night boat to catch up. So I, (laughs) (laughs) I just always picture there being like, no, 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 we can boat anywhere in the dreaming. That's when I realized the changeling chronicle. I didn't know I needed (laughs) night boat. Yes. It says that there's a, there's land trods and water trods, but no air trods, which I felt like a missed opportunity there. I think we get air we, trods. We get later. them elsewhere. In this book? Yeah. Like we've seen them elsewhere and like sun trods and moon trods yep. and everything, but not here. Mm-hmm. And then we get a big lexicon of terms. Yeah. There's a bunch in here, which I, I don't know that we've ever seen before. And I don't think we ever see again, particularly things like, reveries which is an interesting choice given there's already a term of note in the game which is reverie singular 
but it sounds almost like uh, the dark kin that we later get in Denizens of the Dreaming. Yeah. I also like that Realm of Flesh and Myth sounds like a pretty good metal band. And the fact that it refers to it as the mythic realm, which is already a thing in both mage and werewolf. And yeah. you're like, Ugh. yeah. It, it also talks about mythic realm earlier. And I don't think they meant the same. Thing. Eh, <laughs> it's words here. are hard. So, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. There's also mist weir and the veil of mists, which seem kind of analogous to the horizon and the far horizon. The barriers between yeah. near and far dreaming and then far and deep dreaming. Yeah, to me, my way of reading it was always that the dreaming permeated both the three umbrae as well as that mortal reflection. So like the mists were the aspect of the uh, horizon and far horizon that kind of cut across. I did mm. get to learn the the term uh, fearclus or however it's said, which apparently is the, is the Scotch Gaelic term for the northern lights. And I thought that was cool. Yes. Yeah. It literally means the dancing men, because that's the the myth. That would actually be consistent with this. If you have near, far, which is, yeah, that works, actually. Yeah. And, and I think there's kind of a reasonable idea that anything that can be notionally connected should have a pathway between it, even if it's not easy. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, as a mage fan reading this cosmology, it really felt like somebody ex- who had never seen like sport before explaining baseball to me where it was like uh with great ceremony the chieftain mm-hmm. came upon the speaking mound and uh to begin the presentation hurled a sphere at the opposing person who rejected the point thusly by swinging a rod of ash towards it and you're like okay everything you said is technically accurate but your framing is nonsensical to me so i think yeah. in, every, in almost every way at least from what i read they both work and like with very little yeah. difficulty, I think you could translate between the two. Yeah, except for what's this otherware thing? I think that's cool to add to other games anyway, but... Yeah, to me, that could also just be like another interpretation of... I'm suddenly blanking on the term for it, referred to as the backstage of reality. Null zone. Yeah. And I also like the idea that maybe that is a reason that changelings... Uh, a place that changelings do not know how to interpret, so it just kind of appears blank to them in the same way that, like, mages don't know how to look in such a way as to see Chimera without the, yeah. the aid of magic. Mm-hmm. Kind of the one thing, though, that I felt is, like, one of the key things of mages, again, you don't get anything special for being a mage. Like, one of the things I looked at changeling at, and I'm like, oh, that's cool, is all of the weird little ways in which reality bends. Like, it's really hard to make a she look stupid in certain mm-hmm. ways or what have you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wish there were a night folk that did have a strong intuitive tie to the high umbra, which was their natural home. Mm-hmm. And that would make it so that mages could stay as liminal characters. They can go anywhere with difficulty. They're never going to be invited guests, but they can get there. They're kind of like the Spider-Man of the world of darkness. Oh, let's, let's have it be dragons. I also accept mummies as an answer. Okay. I mummies. thought they could have done that. If they did demon a bit differently, that mm-hmm. could have worked too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if the High Umbra were essentially the original realms that the uh, the host used to create ideas, that they were just kind of pulling things down almost in this like platonic projection. And that yeah. once the demons went away, they're like, well, they're gone. And then around that time, mages kind of came into existence. That, and it's the High Umbra is essentially mages exploring an abandoned, a giant abandoned house or something like that. And at any moment, the original tenants may return. I am perfectly fine in making that my headcanon. I like that. I accept the headcanon. That's the podcast we should do, receiving headcanon. But that would yeah. actually get me interested in playing demon, probably. Like, if that if that were actually how it works. Demon's like, well, it's a first edition of a game. 
And I mean, you look at the other first edition World of Darkness games, you have to give them some slack. So if you give it that much slack, I think a hypothetical second edition demon might have been good. It's what we got instead of Changeling Revised, and I'm still yes. bitter about it. <laughs> yes. You read Demon the Fallen, and it reads like... I'm not, I'm not, it's not saying yeah. somebody deliberately said, oh, let's not do Changeling, let's do Demon okay. this instead. But they dropped Changeling and then brought out Demon with when they would have done Revised Changeling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, thematically, to me, it's like... okay, You know how the whole, like, how they created the PC clones back in the 80s? Where... It's like somebody wrote down notes about Changeling in a way that wouldn't violate copyright infringement and then hand it to another developer to make a game. And they made Stefan Spear better go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one anecdote that I've brought out multiple times is when someone had the audacity to say to me, oh, Changeling stole so much from Demon. And they meant it with complete conviction. <laughs> and I was just furious. Yeah. Like you were talking the other day, yeah. Uh, Puka, you're talking about like, oh, we should add this other way of doing epiphanies. And I'm like, yeah, demons have that. <sighs> it would make total sense for changelings. Though. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have never played it. I may play it someday, but it's been 20 years and I haven't had the urge yet. So we also get two more terms of note that I think are good to bear in mind. There's the onus, which are Kithane lost to Bedlam, who become a part of the trods they swear to protect from travelers. I don't like the name, both because it doesn't seem to fit and because there's almost an implied plural because it's multiple kithane, which makes me think the singular is actually an onu. Um, anyway, but I like that as a, as a story <laughs> possibility that you have like like the Black Knight from Monty Python standing on the road saying, none shall pass. So there's that. And then there's also... They're like lost ones. Yeah, they're like yeah, lost yeah, yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the stable points, which are the places in the dreaming that remain mostly unaffected by the Fierwes, of which there are not many. But the book points out that around cities and towns, and particularly at the dreaming entrance of freeholds, the freeholds being the most stable. And I like the metaphysical implication of that, where just the more people you have living in an area, the more regularly their dreams inform the shape of the dreaming reflection of where they're living and that makes a kind of sense mm -hmm. to me are stable points just a near dreaming thing or are they like all throughout the dreaming it seems to imply near dreaming but i think when we get to the later parts because there are the dream realms that seem within their own self-contained reality seems steadier mm -hmm. well i mean it specifically says in the far dreaming there are even more stable points here than in the near dreaming and they change less often mm-hmm but yeah, I, I like that idea though. The the thing that kind of comes out of it to me is like there's this curve of human variability. Like the near dreaming is is more chaotic seemingly than the distant stuff. Um, just yeah. because of the being constantly buffeted by the dreams of so many people who are flitting from idea to idea. And what Pook said that it kind of nails it in place. I also like the idea that there are like small towns that are kind of unmoored and drifting through the near dreaming. And I think that would be an interesting game. I ran a D&D &D game like that. Go on. It, it was basically a dreaming game, except it was D&D &D, and it was very much ported into that system. But yeah, that was, that was one of the things was that you had societies of pioneers out in this ever shifting landscape and how their culture kind of evolved to, to cope with the fact that occasionally geography and matter and sometimes their identities would get shuffled around is the banal shiver mentioned in any other place and should it be the banal sliver no and yes okay i want to say yeah i mean they always talk about banality being cold but 
it makes more sense as a sliver. That's my my head has substituted that many times when yeah. talking about it. So. I also like the idea that changelings now kind of believe in original sin <laughs> in that way, and a yep. weird thing that comes out the other end of that. You're like, oh wow, it's really hard to purify yourself of this. That's a mirror that I didn't anticipate running into. Yeah, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, it's a funny way of putting it. So this takes us in chapter one: the near dreaming. More story. More story. So yeah, there's a it's a description. They're in their airship, and then the red caps come flying in on winged frogs to attack them. Basically, so we get a depiction of said frogs later. I think on page thirty six, and uh, they have luscious full lips in a way that makes me feel a little <laughs> bit uncomfortable. <laughs> like that frog could drop a wicked beach. And like, <laughs> they also have teeth inside their throat, like lining their throat, not just their mouth. On page twenty-three, yeah, yeah, their choice is made. That's the beauty of the artwork in this book, because it's the dreaming. It really can be whatever you want with regards to anatomy or biology. Yep, I am liking that the art is fitting what's being said here. That's welcome change from some other books. So we get geography of the near dreaming which kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but I think it'll be even more oxymoronic when we get to the far and the deep dreamings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost impossible to map the Twilight Realm, but it basically looks like the mundane realm, so I guess it's possible to map the near dreaming. Maybe not usefully, but you can be like, here's a, here's Chicago, and here's Toronto. And here's... Well, again, yeah, if you're near the cities and you're near the places that have been kind of ossified by the volume of mortal dreams then it's, I guess, steadier around there. And then in between, distance stretches and contracts and landscapes change Mm -hmm. and et cetera. So it's not your maps, not to scale. That's the important part. There's a web of, or a constellation or an archipelago maybe of pieces that are to scale and then everything in between Mm -hmm. them is not. Yep. Yeah, I get the feeling that like you could walk from DC to New York in a day or two in the dreaming and when you're in dc and new york they're about dc and new york size but yeah that that intervening space was was much shrunk or bigger yeah it feels like it's to like video game scale (laughs) yeah (laughs) where everything is a quick two minute ride in a vehicle way yeah well i think i think on trods they they depict not just in this book in general they depict trods as a much faster way to get from point a to point b than going through the autumn world so at least on the trods, yeah, I think it's generally a lot shorter. In between the trods, maybe it's like 3,000 years to get from DC to <laughs> And this is also the part where they, they say directly, entrances of freeholds are the only guaranteed stable points in the dreaming. Mm-hmm. I guess stability is a relative term. Yeah, And a lot of it also felt like it was kind of to allow for storyteller fiat to be like, no matter what, you can make the encounter you want happen on the way in a way that makes me go, but I, I am generally more in favor of having the destination be complicated than the pathway be complicated, but that is just my inclination as a storyteller. Hmm. Yeah, you can hand wave it for sure, but it is big in the dreaming, especially if you want to go through the dreaming, it shouldn't generally be just a, you're going through the dreaming. It's like a big deal. So let's actually have like a story around it. And considering the novice storyteller advice for Changeling has hitherto literally been follow the hero's journey monomyth, the journey definitely seems important to them. 
so the thing that is frustrating to me about that is there are things that are hard that are not great story beats. Oh, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's one of those things where it could be it could be physically and mechanically difficult, but it doesn't need to be narratively difficult. Like crossing a desert involves a lot of stamina rolls. I wouldn't call that necessarily a rich story environment, though. But I mean, the dreaming should have interesting stories in it, too. Uh, it is interesting to me to to demand that because notionally the characters are there for a reason. So so to me, mm-hmm. the, the thing about the dreaming is this is a place where the storyteller more so than the player gets to inject what the curvature and geography of the plot is going to be compared yeah. to other places. Yeah. Like the, it actually talks explicitly, not just here in other parts of Changeling. When it refers to the dreaming, and it's not talking about it as a physical entity, it's often injecting plot into things that would not normally have an interesting plot. So so we get a few defined categories of stuff one can encounter in the Near Dreaming. The Madness Realms, which are perhaps the most dangerous areas of the Near Dreaming and are formed by, as the name suggests, the dreams of the mad. Nightmare Realms, which are formed by nightmares. And importantly... The madness realms can, you know, they float along through the near dreaming and they can impact the silver path, but the nightmare realms can surround the silver path and yet you're still safe if you stay on it, which I kind of like Mm -hmm. as a, just a narrative conceit, like suddenly all the trees become dark and foreboding and you hear whispers and it's suddenly the middle of the night, but as long as you stay on the path, you're good. Yeah. Extending the Christian metaphor, the changeling is obviously going for based on the banal shard that is your original sin. Yeah. Well, I think it also is just like reading, like reading the Hobbit and you're walking through the woods, what is the name of the woods with the spiders and you have to stay on the path and then they get, there's a lot of stories like that where you get off the path and things go bad. So stay on the path. And you might go off the path to try to reach a distant city, which is another category of thing. I don't know. A A thing you can never reach. I just, I'm like, yeah. Oh, I think that's important though. Like to me, it's one of those things where it is, uh, Changeling does it less than other game lines, but like there's where the story wants to take place and then it's where the characters might be inclined to go. Like yeah. one of the things that goes throughout this book is to what degree is going to the near dreaming surrendering, like in that mm. war to make sure that creativity is still instilled in the mm. dreams, dreams kind of continue the distant cities are the apex of that. You literally can't reach them. And if you mm-hmm. do, it is because you have gone through the dreaming itself and found the thing that happens to look like a distant city. So to me, it is also one of those things that could force characters to consider what they're doing. Like if they're doing something that is seemingly impossible, if you're looking for for Excalibur or whatever, which doesn't make sense because you have Calibur in this game, but it's some an analogy to that. And you come across a group of Kith that are trying to reach a place that you clearly know is a distant city. You're like, oh man, you can't get there. Um, and then to what extent is saying something impossible go against kind of a theme of changeling. I very much like them as an element. And I think getting uh, the the two or three paragraphs they got here is the perfect amount of text. Okay. You've changed yeah. my mind. And, and particularly with changelings, because one possible interpretation is that there are these shadows of Arcadia. That adds like extra weight to it. Mm-hmm. Let me get more talk about freeholds. I've noticed this whole book. There was the whole wrath thing that they talked about in the second ed core book. It's never mentioned here. 
Yeah. And they like use words for things that would mean that. And it's interesting. A, a wrath being like a portal between the autumn world and the dreaming, like in a, usually inside a freehold. Well, yeah, the, the wrath is the doorway. The freehold is the house. The trod is the street, if you have one. Yeah, because it says here, the very nature of trods is often confusing to people since a trod is both an entrance to the dreaming and the road upon which the fae walk while in the dreaming. I'm like, but they had the term wrath. You could say wrath versus trod. It's all simple. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, speaking of entering the near dreaming, we get five specific ways that are mentioned for how to fully enter it. So trods from a freehold is one. Second, we have dream riding, which as of this edition is dreamcraft, but I guess for C20, Oniromancy would be, this has been folded into Oniromancy. The third one is probably the most fun, which is if you're riding a chimerical vehicle in the autumn world and somebody sees you, banality kicks you into the dreaming, which gives all kinds of fun possibilities. Four is comas, uh, and five is desire. And again, interesting possibilities there. Like such Mm -hmm. fervent desire to enter dream that you get in. So as someone who doesn't fully understand changeling, that seems like saying, yeah, there are a couple ways to get downtown. You can walk, which will take some time. You can take the subway, which is pretty reliable, but it's going to cost you two bucks. Or you could pole vault there. Why would you ever take the third? Like, it seems so easy to get to the near dreaming narratively. Like, the coma one is interesting because you're like, yes, you're in the dreaming, but you are this kind of spectral thing. And I think that creates a bunch of interesting story opportunities where you're like, mm-hmm. hey, we need to get into this thing. How, how do you walk through something in, in your dreaming? It's like, well, I got an answer for you, but you're not going to like it. But importantly, the desire one, at least, they, they specifically point out humans can do that too. And that, I okay. think, is, is why it's a particularly interesting. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of Sarah from Labyrinth, like wishing so hard that it, you end it up. It could be a thing that a PC does, maybe. But I think the point of it is you come across an NPC that doesn't make sense to be in the dreaming who's in the dreaming. Right. Or like there's some mortal or maybe a changeling who just has no access to it, who goes through it and now they're in trouble and you need to go find them or things like that. It's like a opportunity to do things as opposed to like a mechanism the players can use to use to, to access the dreaming that part. Yeah. Or if you're trapped and you can't get to a freehold or something. Like, yeah. It breeds possibilities in my mind and that's, Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad when writing does that. Yeah. And some of them though, like, but driving faster than physics allows, I'm not entirely sure what that is supposed to mean. Now, suddenly that seems an, like an awesome mechanism for mages to stumble into the dreaming. And <laughs> we have this other way of, of getting there. I'm just but... picturing like a, a whole like pile of like uh, etherite car, like souped up cars just stuck in the near dreaming somewhere <laughs> from a race. Like, I'm entirely fine with that. <laughs> I would also wager you could, I mean, if you wanted to game in this direction, I would say something like a child could probably do this more easily than an adult could, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about soul children being abandoned in the dreaming. Though. <laughs> like, uh, no, yeah, we, we've, we've touched on it in our session zero and uh, future ones on safety tools. I think that's... The... Yeah. <laughs> Well, but that's, you know, if, if you have a motley of changelings and they stumble across a lost, scared kid who somehow wished themselves into the dreaming and it's like, oh, crap, we've got to get this kid home, you know, mm-hmm. or a child tyrant yeah. or that we've got to get this kid home, but they've already established an autocracy over their stuffed animals. Exactly. Yep. Scariest three-year-old ever. Yeah. <laughs> 
in a sidebar, we have notes about memories in the near dreaming and how when Kithane enter, they become so Kithane. I do like, though, the way suddenly it kind of makes it sound like you go through this kind of changeling puberty, where it's like you have feelings all of a sudden and you're not sure where they come from. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. yeah. Trolls may notice hair in places where they didn't have hair before. And you're like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's explicitly saying this is, uh, in the plainest terms possible, this device is for storytellers to expand plots, not for player characters to exploit as a source for cheap new powers, which I'm not sure I like that tone, but I mean, the idea is not that there's mechanical stuff. It's that... Like you're not getting dots bonuses to your remembrance rolls. It's your maybe you'll remember a few things you didn't expect to remember. And that's kind of a thread that goes through it where you're like, so my character has uh, clear memories now back to before the sundering. Yeah. Did he know any cool ass changeling arts yet then? Yeah. He knew the art of bladecraft that allowed you to use the sun to cut someone in half. Does he remember how to do it? No. He just remembers that it was a thing. No. Yep. Oh. <laughs> I mean, when I went back to school in 2017 and took some like math courses, I definitely had some of that going. You on. remembered um, that you remembered. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, I knew how to do this integration. I do not remember how to do the integration. I was pleased that after not having ridden a bike for 16 years, that riding a bike is in fact just like riding a bike. I wish more things in life were like that, like the previous mentioning of integral calculus. <laughs> Interestingly, Josh, you had mentioned they say you know it's not. A- an excuse for cheap new powers. And yet I believe starting in the next chapter, we get the augment, which is cheap new powers. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. The near dreaming is not an excuse for cheap. New yeah. powers. The far and <laughs> deep dreaming. Are, yeah. That's where you get the good stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. I also feel like this, this is actually setting up a theme of, okay, tell your players what it means to go into the dreaming is you're explicitly shifting the narrative balance to be a bit more storyteller focused. Like there's all these things that can happen and it's, I don't know, some, some way to yeah, frame it makes that. it more of a gauntlet where it's yeah. like, you're going to get there, but I'm going to throw four encounters at you and I have a real big pool I can pull from. And like, you're kind of implicitly giving me permission to do things that maybe we wouldn't have done if it was, you know, some things. Yeah. Narrative level control stuff where it's like less and less narrative control over your character as you're going up and up through the levels of the dreaming or deeper and deeper. Yeah. So we get the important note that for mortals, the mists work both ways when you're going to and from the near dreaming, which I kind of like because it kind of replicates that sort of dream logic thing. You know, when you're in a dream and you don't know that you're dreaming and you're like, oh yeah, I'm currently person X in place Y and random nonsensical thing Z is happening around me. This all tracks. Mm Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you leave, everything is back to normal. Yeah, I think it's important if uh, you're running crossover games, like crossover PC level games uh, with, say, Mage. Yeah. Figure out how the mists work with regards to things like the Mind Sphere or something. You need to do things to make sure that it's your, your, your Mage PCs don't become unplayable due to the mists. That's a, That's a good segue to... Ask, I, I kind of want to direct this at Terry as resident mage expert, because we also have the note in that same section that mages often find the dreaming defies their magic and all their beliefs in the spheres fall short of the reality of the dreaming. What do you make of this, Terry? And how would you handle this? So we have the idea in mage that when you enter another realm, your normal tools have different notions of how they work. 
So we have the idea, like previously I mentioned, the digital web. In the digital web, technomantic and technologically seeming magic is coincidental, meaning it is of lower cost. It is easier to do. The ramifications, if you botch or fail, tend to be lower. And I interpret this as just saying in the same way that realms can have their own kind of rules, so does the dreaming, but the dreaming doesn't have time for you. So I could see this as being a couple things that maybe you can only use one, two or three dot effects that anything more potent to that is going to rile up the dreaming itself. Uh, so for instance, later it makes mention that high banality uh, characters will be constantly assaulted. So I like the idea, for instance, that the technocracy, it's not like this is one of the cases where it is legitimately more dangerous for them because mm -hmm. they are constantly dealing with wave upon wave of chimera coming out of spawning fields or something like that. The mage equivalent of that friend of yours that is always being attacked by mosquitoes. Like there's something about it that just tracks them to it. I don't like the idea of completely taking away the magical toolbox, mm -hmm. but to me, this is a way of this book saying you don't want one game line to obviate another game mm -hmm. line's yeah. like important goal. Like there shouldn't be a mage effect that allows you to reverse the curse of Cain. And if it, there is, it's the culmination of a story arc. This book really wants it to say, if you're going to go a place, we're going to make it hard. And like, they don't want correspondence three to just make that unreasonable. So I would have liked a little more guidance to say, Hey, mages should be able to directionally do something, but it won't be nearly as effective as they want it to do. I would have a hard time saying you just don't get magic. And then another problem that we run into is we get the idea though, that uh, mages can often deal with these realm rules by figuring out the appropriate appropriate trappings to put around their magic. The problem with that view though, is it kind of indicates that a mage's practice, what they do to create magic is just kind of an affectation or a veneer. And is not like a deeply held personal belief. Like if I could summon Raniel angel of thunder by doing it with an Etch-a-Sketch instead of doing it with this appropriate Inachian sigil, I would be a fundamentally different mage to get to the same port. So, it makes me wonder, is there a dream logic that a mage could understand? And then there's the later comment that says the version of sphere magic that works in the dreaming are arts and realms, which is kind mm. of an interesting tie between the two, if you want to. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you could fit this in mage terms with what it's saying here with it's more than this, but it's like kind of like with dealing with the consensus or a local consensus or something mm -hmm. just way stronger not yeah. just determine what's vulgar but like i'm not sure we're establishing this book but it's like if you pull out a gun a gun might not work properly or if you mm -hmm. try to light a fire it might do something different so like you're taking your internal spheres and your practices and you're influencing the world well the world is now different mm -hmm. so you have to learn the new rules of this world yeah mastered the old physics of the dreaming so i think it's 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 a combination of like what's vulgar but also like in the examples they give this Says, cast lightning from the sky it's more like to conjure a chimerical nightmare is to generate electricity like okay but that's you affecting the world right so mm -hmm. like yeah that's sort of my idea there and they but, they point out too that you know they're even more likely to suffer from paradox which i don't actually like but in, in light of the comments you both made i think a good way to frame it is like you said josh it's a different reality zone if you want there's a different consensus but not only is it different it's constantly changing 
So you have to keep mm -hmm. refiguring out what's vulgar and what's not. Mm -hmm. If you have a changeling sorcerer in the changeling sense of sorcerer with you, who's like very skilled in magic, they could probably help a mage learn how to yeah, work yeah, better yeah. with the dreaming. Yeah. So we have a sidebar about chimerical death and mortals. So humans who suffer chimerical death in the dreaming are immediately dropped into one of the umbrae. I don't know how I feel about that. I also don't know how I feel about chimerical death for changelings and the dreaming means death, pure and simple, full stop. I strongly yeah. disagree with that part. I could go with either way, but having both rules, it, like for a changeling, chimerical death is is real, is like mundane damage, real damage. And for wraiths, mortals and mages and everybody, it's chimerical damage, even yeah. though it later on talks about how you don't necessarily have to be enchanted to enter the dreaming. And anyway. It... Yeah. This is kind of pointing to what I was talking about before, where it just feels like there are parts, again, the book was written by committee, so maybe they just didn't cross-check all of the stuff they were putting in. But it, it definitely has that feel like they didn't fully think through all of the implications of the parts that they're saying. Like, the stuff doesn't necessarily not work with each other. But mm -hmm. it's like when you stop and think about what it means for a game, I, I feel like it starts to kind of fall apart at the edges a bit. Yeah. Like personally, I just go with everything's real in the dreaming. But going with everything's chimerical would also be much better than this both ways thing. I, I do like the line they say that the mists don't have the ability to take away the mortal shell, which mm -hmm. is cool, except for that. Yeah, then, then okay, how do, what is happening when a changeling dies there then? Yeah. <laughs> Because they still have it too. We've been all corpse behind. Did that get shoved into the middle umbra, I guess? <laughs> Which, I mean, is to some extent <laughs> is a type of death sentence, but yeah, depending well, on. The, uh... Well, you're dead anyway, right? You're dead, dead. So it's like a yeah, a human corpse just keeps corpses just show up in the middle umbra, and there's like spirits there, like, what is going on here? We're not, we're not even death aspect. <laughs> Later on, we got the Karamet as well, who their nature has. I think been spelled out more clearly in C20 than it was originally, but this would have been a great source for them. Just say, yeah, when a mortal mm -hmm. dies in the dreaming, they become a caramel. Yep. Anyway. I get to places of import in the dreaming. With basically no actual dream realms mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, I think because this is supposed to physically be co-located-ish with the autumn world. I suppose, yeah. It's very um, Concordia-centric. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, one of them, the Lake of Sorrows, which corresponds to the Great Salt Lake. I'm like, well, that didn't age well. Is the Great Salt Lake gone? Almost. Oh, wonder what that I mean, means for this. Yeah. yeah. It's like 80% gone or something. Oh, wow. I did like, think that's cool, though, with the whole like city underneath. Like, I would want to locate it somewhere inside yeah, the yeah, lake, yeah. but there's like the city underneath, and you can see things you just can't get through. Yep. Oh, look, they mentioned the Nunahi, which I think might be the only mention in this book. And yeah, they have some extra rules. It's rules of the Dreaming sidebar. All things Chimeric are considered weird. I mean, all of these rules, I think, have been superseded by C20 at this point. So There's other things in C20 that are confusing, but yeah. Yeah, it's just that the changelings killed in the Dreaming are forever lost note that I take umbrage with. Like, at the very least, have them reincarnate. Oh, I thought they are reincarnated, aren't they? It says forever lost, so I, I mean, that's ambiguous yeah. enough that it needs some clarification at least. And they talked about the seas and hinting at the whole mermaids and stuff. But And the silver path goes through the seas, I guess. Yeah. 
And that's the near dreaming in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. So what did you think, Terry? I mean, I liked it. The big thing it hasn't given me yet is why do I want to go here? Um, That is kind of set up because this book, the geography chapters are almost just that. And not until we get to later in the book, does it go into details about, oh, here's cities and people and and things that occur here so in the same way that i was thrown off by the fact that the book is like an 18 page introduction where every mage introduction is precisely three pages i think it may just kind of be an arrangement thing there are some of those internal things that don't quite make sense there's a lot of edge cases that really feel like the wheels would come off during them yeah but I, i i like the ideas that it presents. I just wish it gave me a little more information about how to, uh, how to make stories with it. Yeah. As an introduction, it definitely feels more like a full on chapter. Yeah. It, it, yeah. That's what it's like when we got to chapter one, I'm like, this did not feel like a chapter one. This felt like a chapter two. <laughs> I suppose it makes sense in a way if you're reading it from cover to cover and they want to establish, okay, storytellers and players, here's a bunch of things that you ought to know before you even start running your game, mm-hmm. which I guess makes sense, but it just, to me, it felt like I really liked the ideas, but the chapter tried to do too much lifting and left open more questions mm-hmm. than it answered. Both chapters, actually, not just the I think I would have structured this book differently. One idea might have been to have, like, book one, two, three with near, far, deep, and then, like, in it, or some other structure where you have, like, all the dreaming geography. I mean, they put it, like, two, three, four, but, like, have it, I don't know, more... I think this needs to be broken up differently, this book. Just like the Umbra. (laughs) And And half the geography felt more like cosmology, which did make it feel kind of in line with Mage to me. Yeah. And I I feel like just because you're here, Terry, I just mentioned to the people, it's a different chapter. We'll get to it later. There is a chimera based on the dream, dreamers' dreams of mages, which is just kind of hilarious to me. Yeah. And because that's a thing that I've always toured around with. Are there enough mages out there that there is a mage? Is there a kith that is the dream of ascension? Are there enough vampires that there is a dream of redemption and so on? And I always wanted to do a little storyteller vault supplement on those remarkably esoteric dreams, as it were, um, Mm -hmm. that just because of the components of the dreamer. Yeah. 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 I mean, having, having a species of chimera is, a lower threshold than having a kith. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. e- even at the low levels of mages you have over the history of the world of darkness, I think that's enough encounters with sleepers with sometimes the same mage by different sleepers that mm-hmm. you could make sense of this, but okay. So, uh, I think that sums up the book for now, right? Well, it sums up part one, part one of the book. Yeah. Part one of this. So, yeah. So one of the things, at least from a mage perspective that this book does is it says, just because you have mine doesn't mean you have superpowers here. And I am totally fine with that. Um, Mm -hmm. I hate the fact that in the Umbra, the spirit becomes the sphere of do everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That reminds me, Terry, one thing I've been trying to figure out for some of this stuff, my own games are storyteller faults. I can't figure out what role sphere spirit should have in the dreaming. Should it have to be the everything or do nothing? I, I can't figure out how to make it have a, yeah, it, it's level. It's really hard to calibrate it. There's another uh, storytellers vault supplement that you're welcome to uh, flip through if you if you're so inclined. Oh yes. <laughs> Wait, does it cover that spirit in the dreaming? I mean, I won't say it covers it, but you know, it is something that I okay. also had to wrestle with and have thoughts on. So. Yeah. Yep. Okay. 
Additionally, as you go further into the book, I do like some of the sites that are listed in the far in the deep dreaming. I think some of them are just very imaginative and with very little work, a mage storyteller could pick up those locations and just put them in the high umbra. Like the high umbra, you could say is the cognitive reflection of an idea where the dreaming is the more inspirational uh, subconscious idea of a realm. So you have a, a floating city f filled with clockwork mechanisms that are fighting a war against the fleshly, which is pretty fascinating. And I think boy howdy does that fit in a mage game like what does an iterator make of that i do like the idea of the augment the idea that there are changes that go that occur to kith and i'm wondering would that exist in mage is that one of those things where a character that goes beyond the near dreaming suddenly all their resonance traits increases by one and suddenly their essence becomes much more important i like the idea as the dreaming potentially being a place where the avatar gets more materialized, that kind of metaphysical part of you that lets you do magic. And there are kind of two interpretations of the avatar of, is it internal or is it external? I like the external interpretation. Um, the idea that there is this other metaphysical bit that kind of gloms onto you, but that dividing line is, is kind of arbitrary. Uh, my general view on the mists is that they can be fought off, but it increased cost over time. That say, for instance, for each week you want to hold it off, the amount of quintessence it requires increases by one. So it's one point for the first week, two points for the second week, three points for the third week. So even mages are ultimately susceptible to the mists. Not even they can overcome it. Because again, you don't want to have magic be able to obviate the thing that is special in another game line. So mages can hold it off and they can have this cool one month adventure where like briefly uh, a kith and their, their mage bro can have an adventure, but eventually they're only going to have disjointed memories of it when mm -hmm. they come back. I also like the idea that it mentions even changelings won't remember things and it is incumbent on them to write everything down. So mm -hmm. I really like this message in the bottle aspect of it where you, there's a place where you kind of need to write notes to yourself and how good of a job do you do that? So how much of this is actually what it is and how much of it is the reconstructed memories of it, of what is fundamentally unrememberable, unless you have Glamour 9, at which case you're probably already in Bedlam or something like that. I like that there are areas of it that are just hostile to certain paradigms that again, it says uh, mortals in the far dreaming that mages are constantly fighting the mists and technocrats find it to be a violent place that is constantly resisting them. The kind of the last thing of note is in the deep dreaming, you have Mount Chakravada, which is listed as Mount Kof in the dreaming. So Mount Kof in mage is what theoretically was where the digital web was before the digital web was there. Uh, Mount Kof mm -hmm. driven from the idea that it is like the mother of mountains, that it is the, uh, the highest mountain in the world and that no longer exists in mortal reality. I like the idea that in the same way that the zones cut across the Umbre, Mount Kof cuts across the zones. So it exists in every zone and can be used as a way to go through. I think on the whole, this is much more interesting than the version of the Maya that we get in Mage, but at the same time, both are understandable where the Maya and Mage is very much a interconnected set of very common literal dreams. Like you're in a haunted house, you're a movie star, what have you. And I think I am glad the world of darkness is big enough to fit both. So do you think this could be a book that like, a mage storyteller who has no interest in running changeling could pick up this book and get something useful out of it. Yes. In fact, because I didn't want to blow all of my ideas in our conversation before we actually had the show, I was texting with a, I'll say a changeling mage expert mm -hmm. <laughs> about that very thing. And it was just me going, well, 
you could add da 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 from age. You could add da 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 da, and you could take this over. But I mean, I, if nothing else, one of the things that Mage says is that every trip to the Umber should be unique, but then it doesn't tell you how to do that. Like mm-hmm. it only does it in like this very facile, every trip to the grocery store is unique. You'll never know <laughs> who you'll meet. Like, you're like, no, that's not obviously what they mean, but like, uh, the, or whatever it is, uh, properly pronounced just the idea that like, yeah, there are these waves that come across it and periodically change things. Um, mm-hmm. and I think mages are the kind of characters that are quick witted enough to figure out what they are, but also doctrinaire enough to be like, mm, everything's changed. I don't like it. Yeah. I like the idea also that in the far dreaming, it makes mention that changelings like truly see the nature of their kith. And I like the idea that a mage doing the same thing would truly see the vastness of the cosmos and like (laughs) the terror that could come with it. I I think there are legion ways to do it. I I may try and do something with it. I may do a mage, the podcast episode about it, but yes, I, uh, I have a, a hearty list of ideas as someone who does not fluently speak changeling. A A paradigm augment. Uh, so the the question about the augment is is it tied to the dreaming shard if so mages shouldn't be affected by it no no but i meant you could do something in the high umbra like it maybe oh yeah that there there are places that your ideas are are even more potent and uh yeah Mm -hmm. um outside of just sanctums awesome so thanks a lot terry uh for coming back on the show hopefully we'll have you on again for some other future crossover of our respective uh interests and likewise, vice versa. I still need to yes. do an episode on Dark Ages Fey, which are pretty mm-hmm. cool. An episode on the Hisian, which yep. even if they don't fit in Changeling, they fit in Mage. Yeah, they fit much better in Mage, yeah. <laughs> There's the, uh, as well as, this this one is a gem, and Graceful Wicked Masks, if you consider that within your domain. But uh, those to me are kind of the four Changeling-y things yep. I still very much want to do. Well, we're definitely, I think we're, pl- I'm not sure how much we're going to, I don't think we're going to cover a separate Graceful Wicked Mask from first edition Fair Folk, but like separate as a separate episodes, that wouldn't make sense to me. But other than that, yeah, I think we're covering all that too. And if any of those happen, find out about it at MageThePodcast.com. Join us discord.me slash MageThePodcast or at Terry Robinson on Twitter. Is there any projects you want to shout out? Like anything released? When or... does this episode go out? Yeah, it's going to be a while. Okay. I'm going to say that I hope my weird little dreaming project is out by then. I may have said that the last time I was on, but that (laughs) weird project has gotten much bigger and more ungainly, which surely means it will be out in any moment. Awesome. And uh, yeah, so thanks again. So yeah, also you can find us uh, at changelingthepodcast.com. You can email us podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook, uh, changelingthepodcast. You can send us a toot changelingpod at dice.camp on Mastodon, and you'd find our Discord. Is it discord.me slash ctp? ctp for changeling the podcast. Yeah, I got that right. Yay! Yay! Uh, Once again, I'm Josh. And I remain allegedly Puka. So yeah, don't let the mists uh, make you forget about this episode. That's a good one. This episode has been partially sponsored by Jedward Mapplethorpe, the sharp noggin boggins supply store for all your dreaming journey needs. 
Head to the realm of Balloon? Trust Jed to stock you up with a reticulated helium anchor snope featuring not two, but three interlocking seals. Planning to go off Silver Path on your way there? Jed's an officially licensed reseller of knocker-made all-matter boots for when you're trudging through dream stuff whose nature, living or unliving, can't be determined. From ponchos to crampons to nachos to other travel essentials, visit Jed. Other sponsors for this episode include our valued patrons, Derek, Drochadas, Jason Vines, Oreo, Razkabuz, Sanjigger, Sija, and Terry Robinson. If you sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast, you too can get a shout-out of thanks at the end of each episode, but you're also welcome to support our podcast by leaving a review on the listening platform of your greatest convenience, or just telling your friends and attorneys about it. Feel free to stay in touch on our Discord at www.discord.me slash ctp, and regardless, until next time, keep on dreaming. Here come the outtakes. I don't remember what the cursing rules are on your show are, so... Do you know, we, at some point, I think, had a swear in one of the early episodes, and because I hadn't marked it explicit in the post, all of our posts then became explicit no matter what, which feels a little bit punitive. <laughs> you know, so go go wild. <laughs> okay. Noted. I like the flying penguins. Yes, because in the dream, they can fly.